Our uh, scripture reading for the morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 17, verses 5 through 10. It can be found on page 80 of your pew Bibles. Listen now for the word of God. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord replied, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say this to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Who among you would say to your slave who has just come in from plowing or tending sheep in the field, come here at once and take your place at the table? Would you not rather say to him, prepare supper for me, put on your apron and serve me while I eat and drink? Later, you may eat and drink. Do you thank the slave for doing what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were ordered to do, say, we are worthless slaves. We have done only what we ought to have done. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord, for the welcome we receive and extend by your word to us today. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. For you are our rock and our redeemer. And it is to you we turn. Amen. Okay, so today's scripture passage bears a few warning labels for those who dare to preach it. From one preaching resource, we hear the following. The parable of the worthless slave is probably no one's favorite. Anybody care to disagree with that? No takers. Which leads to the second warning. The preacher will have to make an interpretive move to bring this story forward. Indeed, that is true. I take these warnings to heart today, and the move that I might make is out of here. (laughs) Away from a text that has me and perhaps many of you asking why. Why? Why would Jesus who made a big deal about saying he came to announce release to the captives and freedom for the oppressed, frame God in the image of a slaveholder who binds the oppressed in captivity? Why would Jesus uncritically reference slavery and human bondage to make a point about faith in God and not reference faith in God to make a critical point against the bondage of human slavery. Even as we acknowledge that the Bible and the Jesus of the Bible emerge from a set of cultural and theological assumptions vastly different from our own, we nonetheless may ask the question of this text, why? Today's sermon title, Why Ask Why, engendered a fair number of interesting reactions this week. Some of you hear in that title uh, a connection to an adult beverage ad campaign from the early 90s. 
And this is not the connotation I was going for. When I shared the sermon title with Larry, he had this look of concern, perhaps suspecting that my sermon title was a mockery of the weeks of hard work and preaching he has done on the questions, why worship, why learn, why mission, why community, why ask why. (laughs) And maybe I was trying to tweak him a little bit, but that really also was not the intent. And then recently, one of our members texted me to say that this phrase, why ask why, brought to mind all the times that he asked his grandfather why, and he heard in return, boy, why ain't a word. (laughs) With all due respect to Grandpa, who clearly would not have enjoyed Larry's sermon series, but may have enjoyed those adult beverages, why is a word. And there are often very good reasons to use it. When we feel pain or discomfort that seems worrisome or out of place in our bodies, we ought to ask our doctors, why? When confronted with injustice or unfairness, we are called to question it and ask, why? When asking why, we confront harsh truths or misguided confusions. We clarify our purpose in pursuit of deeper wisdom that informs wiser action. Our wise can sustain us. One of our deacons, a teacher of children with great gifts and challenges, recently shared how remembering why she became a teacher helps her through the days when she cannot fathom how she can keep going. Why ask why? Because why can be good. But in today's text, Jesus asks not why, but who? A very different question. Who is personal? Who assigns identity? Who tells us who's on first? Extending the baseball analogy of the day. (laughs) Such was the experience of the disciples when Jesus asked them who. By way of background, he had just taught them the great extent to which they were to show forgiveness to those who wronged them. Jesus told them seven times a day, if need be. Overwhelmed by this expectation, the disciples pleaded with Jesus, well then, increase our faith, which prompted Jesus to observe that if they had just the faith the size of a tiny mustard seed, they could tell a giant mulberry tree, which is like a sycamore tree, to be uprooted and planted in the sea, and by saying it, the tree would be. Now we're going to come back to this unorthodox feat of landscaping later in the sermon. But for now, we will focus on Jesus' question to the disciples. Who? Who among you? Informed readers of this gospel would know the answer, because when Jesus asked who among you in Luke He typically did so assuming that the answer would be no or no one. Who among you, Jesus asked, if a child asked for a fish, would give a snake? Or if she asked for an egg, would give a scorpion? No one. Who among you, Jesus asked, by worrying, can add a single hour to your span of life? No one. Who among you here, today we hear, He asked, 
Who among you would say to your slave who has just come in from plowing or tending sheep in the field, come in, come at once, take your place at the table? Who would? No one, Jesus thought. Instead, the owners would say, get your apron and serve me dinner. You can satisfy your hunger later. Now, by now, I imagine you're probably hoping I'll get to that interpretive move that the scholars say I should make when preaching this sermon to bring the story forward. And I'm getting there. But there's one more move in the text we are to notice. Jesus asked, Do you thank, or does the slave owner thank the slave for doing what was commanded? No, Jesus said. Therefore, so you also, he said to the disciples, when you have done all that you were ordered to do, should say, we are worthy sla- worthless slaves. We have done only what we ought to have done. You hear how Christ's parables often overturn or subvert the expectations of their listeners? This parable is no exception. Whereas Jesus framed his questions initially so the disciples thought, that they were the slave owner in the story, he flips the script and characterizes them as the slaves. And whereas the disciples were so caught up worrying about how they could do what Jesus expected of them, he countered with his claim that a slave who merely met expectations, even the lofty ones, was worthless. So these two shifts, from the disciples understanding themselves as those in total servitude rather than those being served, and as those who must serve beyond expectations instead of merely meeting them, these are why this text merits warning labels, and not just for the preachers, but the hearers too. So given the language of this text, let us for a moment affirm in no uncertain terms that which should be obvious even as it has been tragically obscured through our history. Slavery, in all of its forms, along with the sludge of racial, religious, and economic lies that forms its flimsy foundation, is, was, and ever shall be an abominable institution, inflicting grievous wounds upon generation to generation of those who suffer on either side of its shameful legacy. Nothing said in these scriptures, no matter who is said to have uttered them, diminishes this fact. Just as converting an old slave merchant headquarters in Old Town into a trendy row house cannot obscure our city's tainted history with slavery. And yet, we are left to acknowledge that Jesus did speak of discipleship using the terms and the assumptions of slavery, insisting that his followers, and that means us, be so subjugated to the will and command of God that they put God's desires entirely before their own as a slave assumes fully the wishes of his master. And more than this, Jesus insisted that slaves, and therefore disciples, and therefore us, who merely did what was expected of them, were nothing more than worthless. Who among us wants to hear that? No one, or at least not many. So what do we do with this? 
And here comes the long-awaited interpretive move that I will offer to bring us forward in this story. I propose, and as I said at 8.30, this made sense in my writing it. We'll see how it meets you in your hearing it. But I propose that we move with this hard teaching in order to move also against it. In other words, despite of all the whys we bring to this passage, we may move with who Jesus teaches the disciples they are, so that then we may join Christ in subverting the very forms of bondage that he used to lead them to that identity. Let me try to explain further. Our spiritual forebear, John Calvin, wrote in his Institutes that faith, full and perfect faith, as well as all correct knowledge of God, originates in obedience. By submitting fully to God's will in service, we learn the fullness of who God is and receive the fullness of faithful relationship with God. Such a submission demands more than token sacrifices, but a complete offering of one's self and one's life to God. In a parallel way, we only gain the full meaning and power of friendship by giving ourselves deeply to a friend. Such self-giving demands far more than checking the right boxes, merely satisfying a set of predefined expectations. As a friend, we can strive to call frequently, to remember birthdays, to meet up for lunch after work or between the workday. In short, to do all those good things that good friends are supposed to do, but in doing those things alone, we may fall short of friendship. Because we may be more focused on the expectations of friendship than the friend, him or herself. We did not give ourselves to that friend. Consider the surgeon who has a critically important to-do list before performing surgery. Vitally necessary safety procedures to complete. Essential steps and tasks she or he must fulfill in accordance with well-established medical practices. But merely checking these boxes alone will not lead to a smooth or safe operation for the patient, who, when the surgery is over, does not thank the surgeon for satisfying the checklist, but for pouring himself or herself and his or her gifts into the act of healing. The expectations and checklists really do matter, but only in service of what deeply matters. To mix these metaphors even further, someone who merely follows the directions of a recipe cannot claim to be the chef. And so it is also with discipleship. Today we welcome, with joy and energy and enthusiasm, Jacob to our church. And with him, we welcome the ministry to which he is called in our midst, the ministry of Christian formation. Now this term, Christian formation, is a new and perhaps unfamiliar one to us, but at its core it means that being a faithful member of the body of Christ leads us to offer all parts of our lives to God so that we may become more fully a part of God and God's life in this world. 
To the extent that Westminster is a healthy and thriving congregation, it is not merely because we check the boxes of worship, fellowship, education, and mission. We are a healthy church because of the service and the self-giving we render in all of these rhythms and devotions. And finding ourselves then to become nourished by the Spirit and blessed to be a blessing. If Calvin is correct, then, it is in the deepest depths of our obedience that faith, full and perfect faith and knowledge of God are to be found. In Christ, we have an example of this. Scripture tells us that he emptied himself. He took the form of a slave so that every knee should bend and every tongue confess the glory of God. If it is true, then, that such self-emptying leads us to faith, Let us see, then, what faith can do, even just a little bit of it. So now we come back to that mulberry tree. Isn't it interesting that of all the things Jesus promised the disciples could do with their power of faith, he promises them the ability to essentially move a tree to the ocean. If I had my way and I were a disciple, I probably would have hoped for something more, more grandiose, like fly like an eagle, cure all disease, crush poverty. But Jesus says, no, you're going to be able to move a tree to the sea. What Jesus offers the disciples in this moment is the power to subvert reality, to move a fixed and rooted object to a more fluid and free place. This is the same power that uproots and replants those who are on the margins, to those who become part of the center. We remember that poor Lazarus was left at the gate of the rich man's residence, forever begging for food from his table. But in the power of faith, he was uprooted, replanted by the angels to be with Abraham. And this is the power that opens in Scripture the bouldered tomb, freeing the dead to new life. This is the power that frees the captives from their captivity. This is the power that replants the oppressed into the living waters of freedom. So this is what I mean to say when I suggest that we go with this text in order to move against it. Uncomfortable with the demand that we be like slaves before God, yet still we give ourselves in obedience to receive the faith-filled power to uproot slavery in all of its forms. We move beyond checking the boxes to being formed in service to a God who did far more than what was expected, who extended God's love beyond the 12 tribes of Israel to the entire world, who conferred the blessings of the Lord's table beyond the 12 gathered in that upper room to everyone on this World Communion Sunday when with the faithful of every time and every place, we forever sing to the glory of God's name. Jesus may have used slavery to teach, but his teachings empowered his disciples to move against slavery. To be a part of this movement, of being uprooted and planted in places of greater freedom, of greater joy. Who among us does not want to be a part of that. No one.
Because in this faith, the positive uproots the negative, and we are replanted from the warnings of the gospel for some to the blessings of the gospel for all. May it be so for us. Amen.